Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great day, the day that you have set apart, Lord, for us to come and gather together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ because of the works of Christ that he did on our behalf. Lord, we are humbled by your obedience to the Father, doing what we cannot do, Lord, and deserving what we should have received. But Lord, thank you for your humility, and we also glory in your exaltation, that on the third day, on this morning, you raised from the dead. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would produce fruit in our hearts, Lord, and that we would be obedient unto salvation for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we are in chapter 1, verse 1. And the Scripture says, The beginning of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the best-selling book of all time is the Bible. According to Guinness, the Bible has sold over 5 billion copies worldwide. In comparison, other religious books, pagan religious books, 800 million copies for the Quran, 190 million copies for the Book of Mormon. For non-religious books, Don Quixote, written by Miguel de Cervantes, 500 million copies. The Lord of the Rings, from J.R.R. Tolkien, 140 million copies. No one is close to the distribution and to the spread and influence of God's holy word. But we are Christians, and unlike Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, we do not believe the Bible came to us originally as one completed book. We don't believe that. We don't believe that God gave divine revelation to one man, and then that one man was responsible for revealing God's Word to the world. As Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired a group of men to write Scripture, and at some point in history, the Holy Spirit directed the church to collect and accept which books would be included, what inspired writings would be included. And they are gathered together in what we call the canon of Scripture. Did men collect And have the responsibility of accepting which books make up the Bible. Absolutely. But those men were also directed by the Holy Spirit to do so. At the time of Mark's Gospel, at the time of the New Testament era, the Old Testament had already been collected. The Old Testament has already been accepted as the Word of God. The people of God believed The books of the Old Testament were the authoritative, inspired word of God. 
And Jesus and his apostles affirmed that in the New Testament. The five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, the prophets. All of these, the apostles in Christ affirm as the Word of God, as Holy Scripture in the New Testament. So the Old Testament that you possess today was the same Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles used and accepted as the Word of God. There's no debate about the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? How was the New Testament formed and received? Well, there were several criteria that a book had to meet in order for it to be accepted by the church as the Word of God. Several criteria. The church didn't accept just any writing that claimed to be from God. The first criterion was the relationship of the author of that book to Jesus. That was the first criterion for a book to be accepted as the Word of God and included in the canon of Scripture. What was the relationship of the author to Jesus? Was the author of the letter an apostle? Was the author one of the men the Lord called and appointed to be an apostle to his church? Yes, then the church accepted the letter as the word of God. So the letters of John and Paul and Peter were accepted. Revelation was accepted. The Gospels of Matthew and John were recognized as the word of God. Because these letters were written by an apostle. The second criterion was the author's relationship to an apostle. So if the author wasn't an apostle, did he have a close relationship to an apostle? If he was an apostle, did he have a close relationship to Jesus? And if so, then the church believed and recognized that these letters, these writings were under the instruction or the supervision of the apostle. Think of Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, the book of Acts, James and Jude. These would be included under the second criterion. The men who wrote these gospels in these letters had a close relationship to an apostle. And the early church believed that these men were under the supervision of the apostles. The final criterion was the veracity of the material. The claims that the books, that the writings made. The contents were weighed and they were measured against the other writings of Scripture. And if the material agreed, then the book was accepted as the Word of God. Think of the letter to Hebrews. We don't know who actually wrote Hebrews. The author never signs his name. But we do know the author claims to have known Timothy. And the contents of his letter agrees with the rest, rest of Scripture. And so that's how the New Testament canon was accepted and collected as the Word of God. The author's relationship to Jesus. Was he an apostle? The author's relationship to an apostle. Was he under the supervision of the apostles? And the contents 
did what he claimed agree with the rest of Scripture? A popular question that I'm often asked when talking about the New Testament canon is, do I believe that the authors of the New Testament know that they were actually writing the Word of God? Did they know? For instance, did the Apostle Paul know that in his letters that he was writing something that was on par with the Old Testament? Did they actually believe that they were writing the words of Scripture? And the answer is, yes, they did. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter refers to Paul's writings as the Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul quotes from Luke's Gospel. And he says, that's Scripture. The authors of the New Testament believed that they were commissioned by the Lord to care for the church. They believe that. And that includes the writings that they did. Well, what if the New Testament authors didn't believe that their writings were binding for the church? Why did they command the church then? If, if their letters had no binding over the church, if they had no authority over the church, why, why the commands? They would seem empty. Right? If, if the church did not believe that the apostles were writing the words of God, why did they submit and obey? It makes no sense. But because of the commands and because of the church's obedience to those letters, that's how we can be sure that the apostles, the authors of the New Testament, were certain that they were writing the Word of God. And as early as the second century, a gentleman named Papias, he was a bishop of the church in Asia Minor, he believed and the church believed that Mark's gospel was an interpretation of Peter's sermons. They believed that Mark's gospel, the gospel that we're going to study, they believed it was Peter's memoirs that Mark was writing. And that Mark's authority to write this gospel came from Peter. He wasn't just some guy that was selected. Mark's purpose for writing the Gospels right here in verse 1. He wastes no time for us. This is the purpose and it will set the standard for the rest of the Gospel. He says in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is a proclamation of the good news. Mark is proclaiming to the world that the good news, the gospel, is fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand that when Mark uses the term beginning, he doesn't mean that the gospel is actually beginning now. When, when the Mark uses the term the Christ, Mark's not saying, well, this is the actual beginning of the Christ. He, he never had another beginning. This is it. He's not saying that. Obviously, when Mark says this is the beginning of Jesus, the Son of God, he's not claiming this is his origin right here. No, the idea of the gospel, the idea of the Messiah, and certainly the origin of Jesus was before this point in history. But what Mark is saying that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of those things. 
that what has been promised to us for centuries is now being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine you are a Jew at this point and all you have heard from your childhood is the promise of the Messiah to come and to redeem God's people, to save God's people from their enemies, to be reconciled to God. Finally, that promise is transferred over to fulfillment. That's what Mark means to the world. All those promises of the Son of God, all those promises of the Christ, all those promises of David's son, all those promises of Abraham's offspring, all those promises of the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, it finally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he means. I mentioned Genesis chapter 3. The sin of Adam when he ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, the Lord pronounced a curse upon the serpent. He said to the serpent that the seed of the woman, one would come from the woman, a human, a man would come, and he would crush the head of the serpent. This is the first time the gospel is mentioned in the Bible. It's the first time the gospel is mentioned in redemptive history. In fact, we call this the Proto-Evangelium, which is the meaning for first gospel. Evangelism is the Greek word for gospel, good news. This is the first time the gospel is mentioned in Scripture, not Mark 1.1, but Genesis chapter 3. And since that time, what God has done is progressively revealed more and more about the gospel including the one who would actually accomplish it for God's people. God's revelation is progressive. More and more, little by little, throughout redemptive history, he adds more to what he revealed in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman is the Messiah. The the Jews have come to know the seed of the woman as the Christ, the, the Messiah. And even that Messiah has taken on different revelation. For instance, in the God's promise to Abraham, he promised him that his offspring, that through Abraham an offspring would come, and his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. And according to Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that offspring is Jesus Christ. He's the descendant of Abraham who God has blessed the nations, both Jew and Gentile. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob, a descendant of Abraham, blesses his sons and predicts their future, he says of Judah that the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah. All the obedience of the people will be towards Judah. And according to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 It says, for it is evident that the Lord Jesus Christ was descendant from Judah. So even as early as Jacob, he predicts this Messiah to come and be king of the world. So when the Old Testament promises the one from the tribe of Judah, the scripture says it's referring to Christ. 
when the scripture promises a seed of the woman to come to crush God's enemies, it's promising the Christ. The seed of the woman is Abraham's offspring. The seed of the woman is Judah's offspring. The seed of the woman is the Messiah, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, the prophet who's greater than Moses, the suffering servant from Isaiah, the child who's born of a virgin, the shepherd who was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11. Christ fulfills all of them. And he's also the Christ, according to David, who would resurrect from the dead in Psalm chapter 16. All those promises about the Messiah and his work, what he would do, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. And I could go on. But the point is, the Christ, the gospel, and the Son of God did not begin right here in Mark chapter 1. They were Old Testament promises fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this isn't some novel idea when you turn to the New Testament, right? When, when, the, when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to talk about the Messiah and the Christ, the people aren't like, huh? What did you just say? They knew what he was claiming about himself. That's why they wanted to kill him. They knew what he meant when he said, now the scripture is fulfilled. The first time he preaches in Luke 4, he opens up the scroll and he says, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. They want to throw him off a cliff. They knew what he meant by those terms. His enemies hated him. But the people of God, what a great relief it was for them. No longer is the gospel revealed under types and shadows. No longer is the gospel revealed under ceremonies and holy days. But now it is fully manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the people of God, listen to me this morning. You want to have confidence in your salvation? Look to no other than Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm going to address this morning. Why can we have confidence that when we believe in Jesus, we are reconciled to God, our sins are forgiven, and we are saved from God's wrath? How can we have that confidence? How can we have the assurance that our hope is realized and fulfilled in only one person, and it's the God-man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who possesses the necessary requirements to be our mediator. Only Jesus. Notice that Mark introduces Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God in our text. He is referring to his divine nature, the Son of God, and his human nature, the Christ, the Son of David. So his divine and human nature, according to Jesus' divine nature, he is of the same essence, he is of the same substance, he shares the same attributes as his Father. Since his Father is eternal and infinite, so is the Son. 
And so Jesus, by eternal generation, is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus possesses a divine nature. And that's uncreated. It's eternal. He's eternal. But Jesus' human nature, Jesus' human body, is created. And that's an important distinction. It's a distinction that keeps you from being a heretic. Jesus' divine nature, uncreated, eternal, always existed alongside the Father and Spirit. But His human nature, His human body, they were created. A text for you to write down, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. The Scripture says, Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. That's what the Son of God claimed. A body has been prepared for me. So according to Scripture, at the incarnation, the body and soul of our Lord Jesus Christ was created by the Holy Spirit. That human soul, that reasonable body that he had, And this dual nature of Christ is significant. In fact, it's absolutely necessary for our salvation. It's absolutely necessary that our mediator is both God and man. Absolutely necessary. If Christ is absent of one of those natures, he's not our mediator. We have to look to another. And my question is, when's the last time you saw a man have a divine nature? So if it isn't Christ, we're out of luck. We're out of hope. We have nothing. But why? That's that's the question. I I want to tell you why it is necessary for the meteor to be both God and man. This is why. First, let's address the divine nature. Why is it necessary for our mediator... For the one to reconcile us to God, why is it necessary for the one to redeem us for our sins? Why is it necessary for him to be God? Reason number one, one word, righteousness. Because of righteousness. Only God has the necessary righteousness to satisfy God's anger. (laughs) You don't. I don't. I'm the reason why God is angry at me. It's because of my righteousness I'm in this peril. You know, I'm standing here today a sinner because of my righteousness. But I'm only standing here today a friend of God because of Christ's righteousness. That's it. It's because of righteousness. Because only God has the necessary righteousness to reconcile us to God. Only God has the necessary righteousness to satisfy God's anger against us. That's why it's necessary for Jesus to be God. Because as God, he possesses the necessary righteousness. Second, the mediator must be divine so that he can obtain God's favor. The mediator must be divine so that he can obtain God's favor for us. What's our biggest problem? We're enemies of God. We're at war with him. We need to be reconciled to God. And it's our sins that have caused 
this enmity between us and the Lord. And since we can't bridge this gap on our own, we need someone to do it by grace. Notice how the scripture refers to Jesus as the son of the father's pleasure. When Jesus was baptized, what did the father say from heaven? In you I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the father again spoke from heaven. He said, you are my son and I am well pleased in you. Not Peter, James and John who were hanging around. Not Moses and Elijah who appeared, but the Son of God, I'm well pleased. Because as the Son of God, He obtains the Father's pleasure. The Father is pleased with His Son. And since Jesus is the Son of God, He has obtained God's favor. God is well pleased with us now because of His pleasure that He has for His Son. And if Christ was merely a man, he would not have the Father's pleasure. Third, the third reason why it is necessary for the mediator to be divine, to be God, is so that he can send us the Holy Spirit, without which we would have no help in this world. The Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is sent from two persons, the Father and the Son, He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And since Jesus is the Son, He has the authority to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is given, according to Jesus, for what? For our help. For our comfort. So if Christ is not the Son of God, He has no authority to send the Spirit. Finally, the last reason... And there's many more. These are the four that I come up with this week. The last reason why the mediator must be God is so that his human nature can be sustained. Think of the cross. A mere man would wilt under that. Broken. Wouldn't be able to complete it. Can you imagine if Jesus was just only a man when, the, when God levied that wrath against him, what would that body do? What would that soul, what happened to that soul? It would be crushed. It would be obliterated. He would not be able to sustain himself on that cross and to carry out our redemption. He would have wilted if he is merely a man. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, He is the Son of God. And that divine nature sustains that human nature on the cross so that He can endure the punishment that's against us. Those are necessary requirements. Well, what about the human nature? Why is the mediator's human nature necessary? Number one, in order to pay for the penalty of sin. Why is it necessary for the mediator to be human? Because since man sinned, it is necessary that man pay the penalty for sins. The Lord said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, He says, You may eat of every tree, of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat you shall surely die. Man ate that garden, 
the tree from the garden, man sinned. Now man has to pay the penalty for our sin. So the Son of God had to take on human nature. He had to in order to pay the penalty for sin. Second, the mediator has to be human so that he could suffer in body and soul. Divine nature can't suffer. The divine nature can't undergo suffering. But a human nature can. The human nature did. And so the mediator has to be human so that he could truly experience suffering in his body. So he can truly experience suffering in his soul. He had to experience death. He had to experience burial so that he could raise from that dead. The human nature of Christ experienced all these things, not theoretically, but truly. So it is necessary for our mediator to be Man. Third, it's necessary for our mediator to have a human nature so that he could be our perfect example. Can you imagine if God said, I'm your example now? One of you are the example for the world. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In Matthew chapter 11. He says in John chapter 13, if I then your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So the human nature of the mediator is important so that he could set a human example for us. That we can see and read and learn from. So yeah, it's kind of important, the divine and human nature. Without the human nature, the Son of God cannot take on a human body. He cannot subject himself to God's law. He cannot perfectly obey the law. He cannot suffer. He cannot die in the place of sinners. He cannot shed his blood. He cannot resurrect from the dead. He cannot purify our sins. We remain in our sins. Pretty big deal. But that's also the confidence that we have. Since, since Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as, Matt, as Mark says, has come, we can have confidence that our work of redemption is completed. In Christ, there is everything that we need in order to be saved from God's wrath. In Christ, there is everything that we need to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled to the Father. is because Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is our perfect mediator. In Him, He possesses all the necessary requirements to complete our salvation. So you shouldn't look to no other, only to Christ. Okay, that's great. How does that work for me this morning? Let me ask you some questions. Don't answer out loud. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on a human nature, lived a righteous life, then he offered that righteous life on the cross in your place? Do you believe he experienced those things? 
that what is required of the one who is to reconcile lost man to God, that in him he possesses those requirements. Well, yes, then you will be saved. That's it. Those, there's no need to look for anyone else. There's no need to look to anyone. That's what Mark is saying here. There's no need. The wait is over. He's here. And it's Jesus and His person and His work fulfills what God requires of the one to be our mediator. Christ alone. By faith alone. By grace alone. According to Scripture alone. And when you come to saving faith, to the glory of God alone. That's it. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, have you come to the place in your mind and heart where you settled that Christ is the one? This is it. He's the one. There is no other. He is the one that the Father God has sent to be the propitiation, the one to appease God's anger against me, the one to settle God's justice, to settle His anger, to settle His wrath, to satisfy those things. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And as we take the bread and we think of His body, as we take the cup and we think of the shed blood, the Holy Spirit is going to communicate to you grace whereby you will grow and be strengthened this morning in what you have heard and what you have seen. But for the one who is lost, you've never come to that point. And today, Pastor Stephen, I, I believe today, I believe the Holy Spirit has convicted me. I repent of my sins. I trust in Christ. See me today. And we'll look to Christ as the example, and we'll look to his baptism.